So if you guys remember the last time we were together, I used the illustration of Jacob wrestling with the angel of God. And what happened to him when he wrestled with the angel of God? God broke his hip. He, he set his hip out of socket. And so through wrestling with the word of God, Jacob never walked the same again. That's the point of the story. God changed him and caused him to walk a different way. And what you're going to find as you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures, as you grow in your knowledge of the word of God, it's going to change you. And it will be a gradual change. You won't see it all immediately. Unfortunately, we as addicts, we like to see immediate effects. But the truth of the matter is, is that the sanctification process is a lifelong process. It took all of your life for Jesus to get you where you are now. And it's going to take you the rest of your life for him to get you where you're supposed to be. And as long as we are in his word, his word will conform us to his image. And you're going to come across people from different denominations and different walks of life that don't see things just like you do. And my, uh, my prayer for you and my desire for you is that you will uh, put aside your traditions, put aside how you've been raised, and let the word of God be your standard of truth. And so when you are confronted with other people that don't believe the way that you believe, love them and reason with them together through the scriptures. Right. I have a I have a lot, a lot of dear Catholic friends. And I can tell you that we are completely on opposite spectrum when it comes to our theology. But I love them dearly and I love to sit down with them and open the word of God with them and share the word of God with them. And a lot of them are very open to that. Matter of fact, a lot of my Catholic friends that I talk with and say, well, we don't ever talk about the Bible at church. We just go in and do the Mass, and that's that's what we do. And so the reality is, is you're going to come. I, um, some of you guys in this room are from a very charismatic and Pentecostal background, and that's okay, right? Uh, and I, I love you just the same. And I come from a very uh, independent, fundamental Baptist background, and uh, I grew up King James only, hyper-dispensationalist, and that's okay too. Um, I feel like I've grown in my faith and my understanding of what the Word teaches and kind of walked away from a lot of things that I was raised believing. But all of my beliefs are grounded and founded in the Word of God, and that's what you need to be doing. You need to be allowing the Word of God to be your foundation and then let your traditions and your denominations and stuff rest upon that, rest upon the truth of God's Word. And so last time we were together, we uh, talked about the Reformation. We talked about Reformation Day. That's October 31st. Today's a holiday, too. What's today's holiday? Anybody know? Today's November 7th. What is November 7th? Day. Huh? No, that's that's uh, next week. That's the already uh, thirteenth, I think. Yeah, I think it's the thirteenth. Um, it's ele- it's election day. Today is the day that you're, sp- you're we have the freedom in this country to go and vote. And so today is election day. So today is the day that the electors elect the elected. Right? What does that mean? It means you have the right to go and pull a lever and vote for. You know, Mickey Mouse to be the president of the United States, if you want to. You can actually write his name in if you would like. That's your prerogative as an elector. You are one of the ones that are casting your vote and your elector. As an elector, you have a choice. And you are making a choice for who you want to be the president or the mayor or the city treasurer or um, the crossing guard at your school. You get to vote on those kind of things. The homecoming queen, the homecoming king. We vote on these things. We get a say in that. And the reality is, is that the homecoming queen and the homecoming king do not get a say in, in the matter other than that they get to vote for somebody, right? 
So when they, they crown the king and they crown the queen out on that football field, it's based on the majority of the votes. Not everybody that was in that crowd voted for them. Somebody else voted for somebody else, you see? But the reality is the majority said, this is who we want to be, the king and the queen. So the electors elected the elect. And what I want us to see today is that's the way it, it works in the Bible. God chooses a people for himself. And because he's God and because he is the creator, he has the right to do that. How many of y'all have ever sung the song, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. As I lay helpless, we can still, or however the rest of it goes. Paul, you, that, that song is coming from a text that Paul uses in Romans, and he says this. Who are you to argue with the potter, O clay? You're not the one that gets to say, make me like this. That's the potter that does that. And as we, as we think about that, and as we wrestle with that, It affects us because we like to be the ones to make all the choices. We like to be the ones to call the shots. And so I want to look at a passage of Scripture. We're going to look at a couple passages of Scripture. And then we're going to look quickly through that sheet tonight as we continue to talk about Christ being our mediator. I want you to turn with me really quickly to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews. And... Let's see if I can find that verse I was looking for. Boom, boom, boom. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 10. And let's look and see what this says here. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll just start in verse 1 and go through it really quickly. It says this. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's comparing the Old Testament cultic system. Now when I say cult, y'all immediately think of Jehovah Witnesses or the Moonies or something, some cult. The word cultus in Latin means worship. So cult is a form of worship. And so the Old Testament cultic system is the sacrificial system. Killing all the lambs and the goats and the bulls and sprinkling the the blood on the altar. And that's their system. And so what this writer of the book of Hebrews, I personally think it's Paul, but what the writer of the epistle of Hebrews is writing is, you've had the old system, but the system, the New Testament is a better system. And so what he's saying there is, every year these people go in, they make these sacrifices, but year by year, it cannot perfect those that draw near. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sin. What is he saying there, guys? How many times a year did they bring a sacrifice to the temple? The the people brought uh, three times a year they came and made sacrifices. But the high priest came on the Day of Atonement once a year. And what it's saying is, if this sacrifice was good, why did he have to keep coming back every year and making it again? 
If that sacrifice was able to take away sins, there should have been no reason for him to go back in there ever again. But yet, how many sacrifices did they offer? Daily they were cutting the throats of lambs and goats and bulls. Every day. And it was a constant reminder of what? What is the cutting of the lamb's throat a reminder of? The wages of sin is death. That's the reminder. It's through death that we find life. That's one of the emphasis of the sacrificial system. Any of you in this room who enjoy a good hamburger, some cow had to give up its life so that you could continue living. Right Now I may have a vegan in the room, so I don't eat beef. But the reality is, is you had to cut that vegetable off from the tree and kill it in order to eat it. And through the death of that plant, through the death of that fruit, Right. Once you pluck that fruit from the tree and eat it, it's now dead. And by taking that death from that plant and ingesting it, what does it give to you? Life. So God is ingrained in our very nature, this reality that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is life, you see. And so the sacrificial system was over and over again. I'm going in and remembering I'm a sinner. This is what I deserve. This lamb has taken my place. But it never did take away their sins. And so what he says in verse 3, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So this is in the book of Psalms. This is uh, not 800 years before Jesus ever lived. And what is it saying? Sacrifice and offering you not desire, but you have prepared a body. Who's that body that has been prepared? Jesus. And it was a forecast, a prophecy of him coming well before he ever got there. It says, in whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So this one who was coming was going to do the will of God. Well, look what it says. After saying above sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So what this is saying is Jesus has come to do the will of his Father. And by coming and doing the will of his Father, he has taken away the first ordinances. Have you ever noticed that they're not actually sacrificing sheep over there in Israel anymore? Now, there's a group of people that want to rebuild a temple and start that sacrificial system all back over again. But the reality is, is there's a reason why that temple veil was ripped from the top down. Jesus was saying, enough. It is finished. The way into the Holy of Holies is from above to you. And it's Jesus, the only man who descended from heaven. He is the one that has came and offered the perfect sacrifice. And we don't have to go in behind the veil anymore because the veil is now the, the flesh of Christ and you come to God through him. You see what he was saying? This is a really beautiful passage. So he's talking about, he said, he came to do his father's will. And by coming to do his father's will, he has negated the first ordinances. The old law has been negated. Look what it says. Verse 10. By this will... This is the key text that we're going to look at tonight. By this will. Whose will? By this will. Whose will is it talking about? God the Father. By His will, we, who's we? The ones He's addressing in this letter, have been sanctified. 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, when Jesus died on the cross, I got it on my shirt tonight. What does that say? Anybody remember? I told you all this a long time ago. To tell us die. What does it mean? It is finished. It is finished or paid in full. When somebody would buy a piece of land and they'd pay up, find to make the final payment on it, the banker in, back in their day would stamp on that deed to tell us die. You don't owe anything on this anymore. It's paid in full. So, in order for that stamp to be on you, in order for a one sacrifice for sin to cleanse you of all of your sins, how many of your sins did he have to pay for on the cross? All of them. Look at it again, verse 10. By the will of his Father, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, it does not say we have been sanctified through our will. We've been sanctified through His will. And what was His will? His will was for His Son to come and live a sinless life and for Him to take the judgment and the hell that we deserve and pour it on His Son so that He could still be a just God. Because if He doesn't pour it on His Son, who's He pouring it on? Us. Us. And he took all of that sin, he took all of that death for us. And he said, the last thing he said before he gave up his spirit was, it is finished. Now, please hear me when I tell you this. He did not say, it is now up to you. That is very important. The Catholic Church has a dogma, a teaching that they teach, and it's called the Treasury of Merits. And this is the way that that system works. Jesus in all of the righteousness that he has, not only his righteousness, but the righteousness of all of the saints that have ever lived. Okay? So Mary lived a life that was above and beyond the righteousness it took to get to heaven, according to this teaching. In other words, you have to have so much righteousness to get into heaven... And some of the saints lived such righteous lives that they super arrogated the, the standard that it took. So God has taken all of the extra righteousness of all of these saints who have ever lived and put it into a treasury called the treasury of merit. Now this is a real teaching. I'm not making this up. And the Pope in Rome has the keys to that treasury box. Okay? Now, this is the way that it works. You are not righteous enough to get into heaven. But if you confess your sins, then the church can open that box and share some of that righteousness with you. So what it's teaching is, is that by your sacrifices, you actually earn the righteousness of the saints who have lived before you. Now, what they're saying is, you don't have enough righteousness to get to heaven, but we've got enough in this treasury to get everybody to heaven if you will only believe and come. If you will only come to the treasury, you can have it. You see? So, who is your righteousness depending on? The church. Yes, and you. You've got to come. You've got to perform the proper penance. You've got to say the right prayers. 
you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to do this. You see, we are justified by the righteousness of Christ. And what you and I as Christians, as fallen Christians, as fallen humans, we have this tendency to think of our salvation. Um, an illustration, since I'm looking at it right now, is the charger on my cell phone, the charge meter on my cell phone. And we feel like that in order to get to heaven, I'm going to have to be 100% charged. Okay? Well, every time I get up in the middle of the night and kick my toe on a coffee table and say cuss words on the way to the bathroom, what happens to my righteousness meter? It goes down. But if I pray and ask God to forgive me because I just cussed because I kicked my toe, what happens? My righteous meter goes up. And because y'all are in devotions tonight and y'all aren't out hanging out on an alley doing things you shouldn't be doing, guess what's happening to your righteous meter? You're sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. You're praying. You're worshiping God. So what's happening to your righteous meter? It's going up. It's going up. You're earning righteousness. So I, I'm not picking on the Catholic Church. I'm picking on us as Christians. We all have this tendency to think that my holiness meter goes up and down based on who I am. But it's not your righteousness that's going to get you to heaven. It's the righteousness of Christ that gets you to heaven. If any of your salvation is up to you, you will lose it. Yes. It is. My salvation is. I mean, I have to submit myself to achieve or to have salvation. Now, I understand that salvation is given from Christ, but I still. Salvation is still something that I have to do on a personal level. It's not. Yes, it's given freely, but I still have to receive it and also ask for it. Okay, so grace. I, I hear you. That's the exact point I'm trying to make here. That is our stance as fallen human beings. I got to do something. But the reality is my salvation is not based on what I do. It's based on what Christ has done for me. That's what my... So, you, so here, here's you and I. You can either rest on what you have to do for your salvation. Or you can rest on what Christ has done. Which one of those two acts is going to give you more assurance? Well, they're the same, right? I mean, what, the reason he did that was... Okay. All right. Good. So it's, like, All right. it's not two separate ones. It's the All same right. thing. I, thank you for bringing this up. This is the exact point of the class tonight. This is something that I told you I want to get you to think about what Christ did on that cross and think about what are you depending on to get you to heaven one day? What are you depending on to sanctify you? Now, look, let's look at that verse again. Hold that thought. We're going to go back to it. Okay. Hold that thought. We will go back to it and I will address what you're bringing up. It's very important. Look at verse 10 again. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What does it mean to be sanctified? We, t- we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Sanctified. What does it mean? Uh, in a sense, being saved by grace is an act of a, a pro- part of the process of us being sanctified. But the word sanctified means what? To make holy, to set apart, to be used by God, to follow to Jesus, or sanctified by Jesus' sacrifice for him. Good. So read that again. Where are you getting that from? Is that a Christian dictionary? Okay, good. Read it. To make holy, to set apart, to be used by God, to follow to Jesus, or sanctified by Jesus' sacrifice for them. Then it says, but they must also keep on working to be sanctified. The Holy Spirit helps God's people live holy lives. 
the Holy Spirit. All right, so I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's, let's hear that verse again. That's Galatians, right? I am crucified with Christ. What does a crucified person do? Dead. They're dead. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's whose power is it that gives me the strength to live according to his will now? His power, not mine. And if I depend on me, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fail. All right? The whole reality is grace is an unmerited gift. What does it mean to say something is unmerited? It's undeserving. You didn't earn it. You didn't, it's not a reward. And so many people have been taught in Christianity that me choosing God, he's rewarding me with salvation because I choose him. The reality is the choice that you made was made long after he made a choice to die and save you. All right, so what happens is, is he gets the glory for it. Okay, so to be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy. And look at that verse again, Hebrews 10, uh, 10, 10 by God's will. That's what it says here. Make sure y'all are looking. I want you to see this first. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once. The sanctification. So, you have been sanctified. You are being sanctified. You will be sanctified. When Paul says we are sanctified, it is an eternal process. Well, what do I mean by that? It is an eternal process. Well, let's turn back to what um, most of y'all love. Uh, if, if, if you love the Bible, you love Romans 8, which talks about life in the Spirit. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Right? And now what that says? Let's go there and look at that really quick. Romans chapter 8, and let's look at, we'll see that first. And then we're going to go back and look at some more of Romans chapter 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say that everything is good. That's not what it says. It says everything works together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All right? Who called? God. Jesus said, I am the shepherd. I call and my sheep what? And they know me and what do they do? They come. He calls. Adam, where are you? Who sought Adam? Who sought Adam? When he was naked and afraid in the bushes. Yeah. If God would have not come down there and saw Adam, Adam would have never turned back to God. He was dead in trespassing sin. But God, who was rich in mercy, even when we were dead on trespass sin, made us alive together in Christ. What is it? What does it call when you make somebody alive? You give them life. Who gives us life? God. What does a dead person do? Nothing. You sure? All right. So let me ask you this. We're gonna we'll stay with this passage, but I want you to I want to ask you something. I want you to be honest with me. How many of you think that this is a legitimate prayer? That if I if I was at home and you were flying on the wall and you were hearing me pray this prayer, how many of you think this would be legitimate? Lord, my brother is astray. 
and he's caught up in a world that's destroying him, and he simply cannot see your love and your mercy and your grace. Please help him. Please save him. Please change his heart and make yeah, him a prayer. 110%. Yeah, it's, uh, is that a legitimate prayer? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is definitely a legitimate prayer. But do you know what I'm asking God to do? I'm asking God to override my brother's will for his will. I'm asking God to change my brother's heart. Can God do that? You better believe he can. Because every one of you in this room, if you truly are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, it's because He changed your heart. You were dead in trespass and sin. How many of you would... Yes, sir. It also says you have to die every day so you can live. So that can be kind of a slippery slope. And it's talking about dying of the flesh. So if you say we were dead in sin, but then also you have to be dead to receive Good. your sanctification okay. All right. every day. Very much so. It says you were dead in your trespass and sin, walking according to the course of this world so you were a walking zombie that's what it says you were dead in your trespasses and sin you were walking according to the course of this world walking according to the prince of power the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience but God being rich in mercy made you alive in Christ you were dead God made you alive alright now think about my brother's prayer that is definitely a legitimate prayer. And I pray that for a lot of family and friends all the time. God, please save them. If you don't save them, they're going to bust hell wide open. And I love them and I want them to spend eternity with you. That is a, that is a legitimate prayer. You, you should be praying that every day for your children, for your mothers, your fathers, your families, your loved ones, and the people in this room. We should be praying that for everybody. But the reality is, is I'm asking God to change someone's heart. I'm asking him to step into someone who is on a direct course for hell and turning them around. Now, when God works, we do turn around. When God steps in and changes our heart, our will is set free to do what he wants us to do instead of being in bondage and slavery to sin. And again, I I want this to sink in. How many of you in this room chose to be born? I didn't say born again. I'm talking about when you was a baby. How many of you in this room can raise your hand and say, it was my choice to be born? None. Not only that, it really wasn't your parents' choice. They desired to have a child. But that that egg and that seed being planted and it growing up healthy inside of your mother's womb was all God. Now, once she became pregnant, she wanted you. You see what I mean? Like, but the truth of the matter is not a single one of us can raise our hand and say, I chose to be born. And that is the very reason Jesus uses the term, you must be born again. To let us know that it is God that reaches in and rips that dead heart out of us and gives us a new living heart. And makes us alive with Him. You see how that works? Let me ask you this. How many of y'all know the story of Paul the Apostle? How many of you would say that Paul chose God? Saul, Saul. Why does thou persecute me? What did he do to Saul? He knocked him off of his horse. 
and said, I've chosen you to be a vessel to suffer much for me. Paul, had God not intervened, what would Paul have kept doing? Killing Christians. But God intervened in Paul's life. Now, the reality is, is that Paul was raised up all of his life in the Scriptures. So he had been hearing the Word of God all of his life. But he was hearing it through the veil of Moses. He was hearing it through a rebellious heart that wanted nothing to do with God. He wanted a righteousness that was of his own, not a righteousness of God. But through the Word of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God knocked that man off of his horse and changed his heart that day. And turned him around and made him the greatest apostle to ever live. And we have to understand that that's how God works. He takes wicked, evil men and women like me and you and turns us around and makes us his children. And what you can always rest your head on your pillow at knowing every night is, He chose me. Now, does that statement make you proud? He chose me. But does it make you proud? Does it make you better than the other people around you that He chose you? No, it breaks your heart because you know there are way more deserving people out there to deserve His love. You see what I mean? And so one day, every one of us in this room are going to stand before God and we're going to answer for why we're coming into His kingdom. And the only proper answer is because you promised me. Because of your promise, God. Because you always keep your promise. And because your son Jesus died on that cross to save me. You see how that works? Alright, so let's look at this Roman 8 passage and see what's going on here. Because at the very beginning of Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be condemned? The sen- you have the sentence of judgment, the sentence of wrath over your head. And it says, for all of those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation now. Right? Think about Noah's ark. All of those in the ark are what? Say from what? God's judgment and His wrath. If you are not in that ark, you are dead. But for those that are in Christ Jesus, there's now no condemnation. Look what it says. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Christ Jesus has set you free. See, people will say, well... I ain't going to trust no God. God don't just want robots. He don't want just people that He can just choose and make them be Christians. He don't want robots. But the people that are saying that, he, people that are saying that don't realize this. They don't understand how much of a slave to sin they really were before Christ set them free. See, you were a robot to your own desires. And every one of you in this room who has struggled with addiction know exactly what I'm saying. But God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive. We were a slave to our own dead nature. And God reached down and said, I love you too much to let you keep living like that. And he gave us new life. All right. So how did he do that? Look at it again. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. So in Christ, there's no condemnation. In Christ, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. Both of those things say in Christ. 
For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So the law couldn't do it because the flesh was weak. Is there anything wrong with the law? No. There, in the book of Hebrews, it says the law is imperfect. But it's not saying that God's law is imperfect. What he's saying is our ability to keep it is what makes it ineffective. You see? It's, God's law is his perfect will. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our willingness to keep it. And so what did he say? He said, so God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So by dying on that cross, he took our sins for us and condemned sin. And because he took sin and condemned it, now you and I are no longer condemned. That makes sense? I look what he says next. So that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. What is he saying? You're either a natural man or you are a spiritual man. And the natural man sets his mind on what? His own flesh. All right? Look, uh, look at it again. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh. Verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to. What does it say that something is not even able to do it? What does that mean? Y'all remember the, the, the illustration? Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? May I? Yes, you can. But the, the question is, may I go? Do I have the permission to leave the class? You can go right there sitting at your desk. You have the physical ability. You can do it. But you may get up and go to the bathroom before you do that. Remember the illustration we learned in school. Well, look what this is saying. Look at verse 6 again. 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to. It can't. So what that verse right there, what Paul is saying is, the natural man cannot yield to the spiritual things of God. He's hostile. He hates God. He hates the Spirit. He hates anything to do with God and His righteousness. Because if it's about God and His righteousness, then it's not about my flesh. It's not about me. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the one thing you are going to fight the rest of your Christian life. The difference in you as a child of God... As opposed to what you were when you were a child of the world. When you were a natural son of Adam before he saved you. The difference is, is now you have a battle going on inside of you. Before Christ set you free, there was no fight. You did what you wanted to do. Now, you would convince yourself that you were doing good. But the only reason you were doing good was out of self-preservation. There are a lot of people that go to church because they don't want to go to hell. A natural man doesn't want to go to hell. 
A natural person does not want to die. And if you don't believe that, you go and sit down with a loved one who's dying that doesn't know Christ and see how they act taking their last breaths. It is one of the most horrifying things you will ever watch in your life. That person is stepping out into eternity and they will never know God and they will know His wrath forever. And they are horrified and they don't want to go to hell. But that's natural preservation. Every natural man has a a self-preservation in them. But when God changes your heart, it stops being about you. And it starts being about Him. And now, as a child of God, you have that old man that's still trying to preserve self. If you don't believe me, after 15 years of not doing nicotine, I can still walk into a gas station and look at a snuff can behind a counter and my mouth goes to water. The natural man wants it. Right? But the spiritual man knows it's not good for me. And so now there's this struggle going on inside of me. Right? You see the difference? Before, I just embraced the struggle. Same thing with lust. I hate yoga pants. I think they're the worst thing God ever put on the earth. They constantly keep my mind going into the wrong places, man. I I work at a, listen, I'm being honest. I work at a grocery store and they have the hot yoga class every day. And all them women coming over with their little masks on there and walking around. And I have to force myself to turn away. Now, I'm just being blatantly honest with you as, as men and women. Like, I don't need any help with my natural imagination. But the beauty of being a child of God is now I struggle with that. Before I was a child of God, I would have cared less if she had a wedding ring on. I'd have went and got her number. That was just a that was just an obstacle to get over. Now I realize that this is somebody's sister, this is somebody's mother, this is somebody's kid. And that they're a human being with a heartbeat inside of them. And they have a soul. And they are created in the image of God. And I have no right to lust over them anymore. But that battle goes on inside of me every day. The difference is, is now I battle. And it should be the same for you. If you are a child of God, you are now battling. And you're now fighting. And thanks be to God, He's given us His Spirit that we can overcome these battles. If you're depending on your willpower to keep you sober when you leave here, give it up. Your will power is the problem, not the answer. The answer is His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see how that works? And if I'm leaning on my will, I'm leaning on a broken crutch. To lean on my will is like handing a blind man a flashlight and saying, hey, walk out of this dark. Mm-hmm. Or handing a crippled man with no legs a pair of broken crutches and saying, hey, walk it out, guy. That's I'm being honest with you. But what does God do? He gives us new heart. He gives us new eyes. He gives us, like in, in the words of Forrest Gump, new legs. <laughs> he gives us the ability to walk in a way we do have never walked on our own. He sets us free to serve Him instead of ourselves. And that's what all of this Romans 8 is all about. It's talking about life in the Spirit. It's talking about life in Christ. So, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't have the ability. That's when He steps in in His power. So it says in verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. How do we know we belong to Him? We have His Spirit. He gives us His Spirit as a seal that we belong to Him. Okay? So then, brethren, verse 12, we are under no obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Are there people today who are lost that you think are being led by the Spirit of God? Yeah. Yeah. There certainly is because what is he doing? He's drawing them to himself. How does he draw them to himself? Through the power of his Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of his promises, through the proclamation of his word. And so there are people that are sons of God or soon will be. When he regenerates that heart, when he gives them a new heart, when he fills them with his spirit, they become adopted into the family of God. You see? And God is at work all the time. Those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So who is a son of God? Someone who is being led by the Spirit. Now, the natural man is not being led by the Spirit, but he can be being drawn by the Spirit. He's not, there's a difference in being led and drawn. What's the difference in being led and drawn? Right. Well, I use my cat and my dog. I can lead my dog into the veterinarian's office. I have to draw my cat in there. I have to put him in a little net bag and carry him in. My dog just comes along with me with his tail wagging. He don't care. You see? Oh, there's other dogs in here. This is a cool place, right? It smells like all kind of strange things. I like it. My cat has nothing to do with it. So one of them I'm leading in. One of them I'm drawing in. So like one of them is following me. <laughs> one of them following me. Right, right. So someone who is still lost may be being drawn by God. He may be pulling them to himself, and they will come kicking and screaming. Many of you remember that. Amen? But the child of God is being led by the shepherd. Okay, so I want to go down. um, I want to jump down to verse 26 of 8 because we're going to run out of time. But look at verse 26. It said, In the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So what is the Holy Spirit constantly doing? Do you think that the Holy Spirit could actually be subverting your will in your prayers? Read that again. The Spirit helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is stepping in as an intercessor in our prayers and sanctifying them so that they can be presentable to the Father. Right? <clears throat> How many times, oh God, I'm ready to get married. Give me a good wife. Right? And the Holy Spirit's like, this knucklehead ain't ready to submit to anybody, much less a woman. Right? And so he, he answers prayers for you. But the reality is, is the Holy Spirit is constantly interceding for us, even as we pray. Why? Because he said, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray about. We don't even know. Some of the things I'm praying for are completely opposite of God's will for my life. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of some of the things that you're praying are actually opposed to God's will? Yep. 
Jesus rebuked His disciples. Because He said, I'm going to die on this cross. And what did they say? God forbid. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. I'm going to do my Father's will. And sometimes my Father's will doesn't look like your will. Matter of fact, a lot of times it doesn't. But look what He says. So we get... We see in verse 27 that he who searches the hearts know what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is literally interceding in us and through us that we might carry out the will of God even when we're living opposed to it. And as we grow and mature and we grow in our knowledge of scriptures and as we grow in our Christian walk, Preferably, our life is going to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And if my life is being more conformed to the image of Christ, then what is my walk going to look like? It's going to be more conformed to being Christ-like. And the Holy Spirit is not going to have to quite intercede quite as much because I'm going to begin to understand and see His will for my life. Right. I, I, I start to mature. I start to mature as a child of God. And instead of it being me, 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 my, 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 and crying every time I hear no, and constantly saying, mine, as I, mature, as I mature as a child of God, I start beginning, you know what? You're more important than me. You're my neighbor that God has put in my life. And I'm supposed to love you as I love myself. God's desires are more important than what I desire. And as we mature and grow and as the Spirit works in us and conforms to Christ, we become more and more Christ-like and we begin to start seeing those things. We begin to see what we're supposed to see. But all through this process, our will is constantly trying to pull us astray and pull us aside. And God is willingly conforming us to the image of His Son. Now look, and then we'll be done. I promise, guys. We all want to get these last couple verses down. Look what it says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to the purpose. So all things work for good to those who are what? Called. All right, what does it mean to be called? Now, the question we have to ask is this Does he call everyone? Hmm. Now, that's a tough one. Yes, sir. So, his call would be like knocking Saul or Paul off the horse? Is that what that's a pretty, yeah, that's a, that's a door, that's a, that's a heavy door knock, right? Yeah, that's a call. Adam, where are you? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Those are calls. And and if you're in this room and you truly are a child of God, you heard him call you. It might not have been in an audible voice, but he broke your heart. And he showed you what you look like from his point of view. And he showed you your sin and you were willing to turn from your sin to yourself and turn to what he did for you on the cross. And so what does that mean the whole time he was calling you? Because look what it says. And here, this, this is known as the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. Look at verse 29. All right, so those called according to the purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these he predestined, he called. Now, I'm not making this up. I need you all to open your Bibles and make sure you're seeing what I'm saying. Open your Bible and look at this. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that that he, 
Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. All right, now remember, it doesn't mean that Jesus is the firstborn, like naturally firstborn. The word firstborn means the child that has the preeminence, the heir, the firstborn. All right, there was a lot of people that were physically born. Now, Jesus is eternal. But there was a lot, Moses, Abraham, David, there was a lot of people that were physically born before Jesus was. Are y'all with me? Jesus is eternal. He's God. He was there speaking to Moses in the bush. But he was not clothed in human flesh until he came and was born of Mary. But he is the firstborn in the sense that he is the heir of all things. And so it said... He was conformed to the image of the Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What do you call it? Somebody's your brethren. What are they? Your brothers and sisters. What do we call that, our brothers and sisters? Family. family. This is a family thing. Familia. He's the firstborn, right? Familia, yeah, that's very true. All right? And uh, uh, these he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So this is what Paul is saying. There is a work of God going on in the kingdom of God every day all around you and you are a part of it. And it started before you were ever born. Matter of fact, it says it started before the foundation of the world. And look at what it said about that. It says, we know that God calls all things to work together for those whom he foreknew. What that means is before the world was ever founded, he knew you. Now notice what it says. He knew you. It's not what he knew, but whom he knew. There's a big difference in that. There's a difference in what he, what does God know? Everything. So, did God know, did God know before Jesus went and died on the cross that you would one day believe in him? Yes. He certainly did. But that is not the reason that Jesus died on the cross for you. The reason that Jesus died on the cross for you is because God the Father knew you personally. He knew you. When you were in your mother's womb, He what? Knew you when, when He was forming you. Yes, ma'am. So does, that mean, did we, so does that mean that He calls everybody? I mean, okay. Everybody? okay, good. Great question. What this is saying is, is this is all one big process. He foreknows them. Look, look at it again. He foreknows them. He predestined them to become conformed to the Son so that they would be the first one. He predestined. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. So all of those that he knows. Now, who does God know? Everyone. He created everybody. But what it's saying is his family. His people. His chosen ones. The Bible never calls the children of Israel the choosing ones. Have you ever noticed that? It always calls them His chosen people. He picked them. And He said, I didn't pick you because you were smart and brilliant. I picked you because you were the smallest of all the peoples. And you were a train wreck. Right? He picks His people so that He can be glorified in them. All right? So I, I got to finish. So think about that. Here's this golden chain. And what it says is, so a lot of people think this. Well, Jesus died on the cross and he was dying for me because he knew that one day I would believe in him. 
All right? Well, what is the problem with that? What is the cause of Jesus dying for me? My will. He knew that one day I would choose him, so he died for me. Are, are you with me? If that's my perspective, he looked down through the quarters of time and he saw me and I was special to him because he saw that one day I would choose him, so he died for me. That's not what this says. This says, this says before the world was ever founded, he knew me. And because he knew me, it was predetermined that he would die for me. It was predetermined that he would call me. It was predetermined that I would be justified. It was predetermined that I would be glorified. It's all his work. And that we can't stand that because that means that I didn't have a say in it. We don't like that. We don't like to be told those things. But the truth of the matter is... Is that God calls his people and not one single one of them will slip through the cracks. Not one. He's not going to be in heaven one day looking down in hell going, oh, there's old Timmy. I died to save him and he's down there burning. Why is he burning? If Jesus died to save him, what sins is he paying for? If Jesus died to pay for Timmy who is in hell, every sin that he ever committed, why is Timmy burning in hell? His will. His will. His will. Okay, is, is unbelief his will? Is unbelief a sin? Is unbelief a sin? All right, how many sins did Jesus pay for on the cross? All of them. That means he paid for unbelief too? Yes. So who goes to hell? Nobody. No, there you go. That's called universalism. It's a fantastic idea. Everybody goes to heaven. Nobody goes to hell because Jesus died on the cross to pay for every sin of every person that's ever lived. Well, think about this. It's easy for us to think about. I, I want y'all guys to struggle with this. Like this is something you need to struggle with. All right. So it's easy for me to think, well, Jesus died for me because he knew one day that I would believe on him. So that's why he died for me. Mm-hmm. Well, what about this? Did he die for Judas? Judas was already hanging in a tree. You ever thought about it? Did he die for Saul? Did he die for Cain? Did he die for everybody before him? That had already died in unbelief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Then you go back to hell and, you know, call Jesus back. Abraham's bosom and circle back around. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what a lot of people believe. That's where the, that's where the, the thoughts of purgatory come from. That's where the, thought, the thoughts of purgatory are, is that one day um, you, can, you can actually be rescued from Abraham. But, like, you can actually be rescued from there and go back up to heaven and not go to hell. Yeah. No, these are things that I, I want you guys to think about this. I, and, and I'll finish with this. Who are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it a choice that you made or is it God's choice of you? And I can promise you that there's one of those two answers that will let you lay your head down on your pillow tonight and glorify God. With your thoughts, your minds, and your heart. The other one is, well, did I really believe him? Did I really choose him? You see? Did I really mean it? Because if I didn't really mean it, am I safe? And I'm resting on my will. I'm resting on what I choose, what I do. Instead of resting on what he's done. Now back to the original verse, and then we close with prayer. By one sacrifice, he is sanctified forever. Or by one sacrifice, he has perfected, perfected forever all of those who are being sanctified.
Let me say it again. By one sacrifice, he has perfected forever all of those who are being sanctified. Sanctified or salvation? Sanctified. Okay. Set apart. Sanctification is part of salvation, no doubt. All right, so I hope this gives y'all got something to think about. I love you all, and I and I, everything that I say to you here, I have to answer for one day when I stand before God. And I firmly believe that if you can rest in God's will for your life, you will find the peace that passes all understanding, as opposed to resting in your will. Amen? Father, thank you for this time we've had together tonight. I do hope that you will take these words, these truths, and cause us.